Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. We've been doing Germans for a while, but today we're going to take a step back and do human nature in Hobbes, Hume, and Spinoza. Uh, We're going to jump back a little bit and talk a little bit about the evolution of liberalism in the Anglosphere and also, uh, to some degree, in the Netherlands. Important to remember that during the period of... um, liberal and capitalist development uh, in England, Britain and the Netherlands were closely allied states. Mm. Uh, in, and there's a lot of overlap in the kinds of ideas that we tend to get from those contexts during this time. In the Glorious Revolution of 1688, the uh, Dutch William of Orange becomes King of England. Mm. So, a little bit of Dutch, but a lot of lot of English. And we want to do a little bit of comparing with some of the Germans we've talked about, but also, of course, discussing the Brits on their own terms. Uh, and we're starting with human nature because human nature plays such a significant role in a lot of this political thought. There's kind of a return to first principles with these theorists because as you go through the English Civil War, the Glorious Revolution... There's a lot of back to basics. You know, what kind of state do we really want to have? What kind of regime type do we really want to have? And you know, what suits people and the way that people are? And so there's a lot of, of thinking about the natural. And we've talked about this before on episodes a little bit further back, this emphasis on the natural and on what's natural. And the old consensus on what's natural coming out of Catholic natural law theory And as Catholic hegemony over ideas in Western Europe declines, there's an opening up of different conceptions of the natural. But theorists still tend to use this idea of the natural because it was so heavily used during the period of Catholic hegemony. But they're now debating over what it means instead of accepting the Catholic Church's version of what is natural law. There are now more and more differences in beliefs about what is human nature and what is natural. And so, of course, we've done Hobbes way back on the very first episode. We did a bit of Hobbes, but we'll bring him back in today. Uh, Hobbes makes the argument that people say that Hobbes has a pessimistic view of human nature, but I don't think that's fair. Hobbes thinks that we are very, very concerned about survival. We're very fearful of each other. We live under a condition of scarcity, and we live under a condition of subjectivity. We're all in our own heads, and we don't know what's in other people's heads. We don't know other people's intentions. There's also natural equality among people. We can all hurt each other. For Hobbes, equality means we can all hurt each other. So we can all hurt each other. Uh, We don't all have what we want and what we need, uh, and we don't know whether other people intend to hurt us. And this produces a lot of paranoia and fear. Uh, it, what Hobbes calls diffidence, and also glory-seeking, uh, trying to demonstrate to other people that you're intimidating so that they leave you alone, often by doing terrible things to other people. 
right? So for Hobbes, a lot of the terrible things that we do comes out of our fear of death, not because we're necessarily very cruel or malicious beings. You can have an incentive to do a very, very cruel act so that others will be intimidated and leave you alone. Right. And for Hobbes, the difference between glory and vainglory, glory is an intimidating act that causes people to leave you alone. Vainglory is an act which causes people to team up against you or view you as a problem and target you. Right. So for Hobbes, what makes an, an act glorious is whether it contributes to your survival, first and foremost. Uh, th this is often painted as pessimistic. I don't think that that's a fair characterization because it's really about fear. It's really about fear and lack of knowledge of what other people are doing, what other people might do in the future, right? And for Hobbes, our fear leads to our seeking peace. And our seeking peace is what will eventually lead into the construction of the state. The, the fear uh, and this, this emphasis on survival, it comes back to for Hobbes his empiricism and his focus on we're matter in motion. That's what we are. And there's nothing really else to us. So all we can, you know, whatever motion we want to have, that is predicated in our continuing to survive. So for Hobbes, survival is the prerequisite of anything else that we might want. There's an acknowledgement that there are other things people want, but those things are secondary to survival, which receives priority for Hobbes. Now you go over to Hume. Hume takes a little bit of a different view. Hume argues that we're actually very sociable people, but we're only sociable to people that we know. Uh, and for that reason, we get along very well in tribes or small towns, small settings, families. We can be very, very cooperative. But as soon as we start to deal with strangers, people we don't know, our impulse is to take advantage of those strangers to give to our family and friends. And so as soon as societies get bigger, as soon as you start to have bigger cities, bigger states, then you're going to have a lot of theft and corruption and ill treatment. And so for Hume, the way to solve this problem is a series of conventions, right? Uh, and these conventions instantiate property and property prevents the system of property and contract and, and property law. Uh, prevents these thefts from occurring and enables human beings to have societies that operate at bigger scale than tribes and small towns, right? So some people who like anarchism and like small polities really like Hume because Hume says, yeah, people can do that. There's no reason we can't do that. Uh, but Hume says, if you want to have something bigger, then you need property. And property comes into being when you start to scale up. So you could find anarchists who, who like Hume just fine for that reason. Uh, but of course, the argument is very influential with people interested in rule of law arguments in the need for a rule of law or an impersonal set of legal institutions or property rights as a way of securing order. Then you come to Spinoza. Uh, Spinoza, also very interested in survival, but coming at all of this stuff from a very different direction because Spinoza is a rationalist, not an empiricist. So Spinoza is not trying to reduce everything down to uh, core uh, human passions or core human impulses. He's for, for Spinoza, we have this attentiveness to reason. And while this attentiveness to reason is not absolute, we often deviate from it. Uh, if we align with reason, then we can get 
better behavior out of people. And so the state needs to enable reason to triumph over the passions. Now, the state must nonetheless attend to the passions because the passions cannot be thoroughly negated for Spinoza, right? For Hume, you know, we come, uh, we, we use reason to serve the passions. We need to attend to reason, but for the benefit of the passions. For Spinoza, it's almost the opposite. We have to attend to the passions in service of reason, right? And so Spinoza is going to come out as a Democrat because Spinoza is going to argue that while one person might, uh, a monarch might easily end up being overcome by the passions and deviating from reason, larger groups of people are more likely to, in aggregate, make reasonable decisions because it won't be the case that a majority of people become unreasonable. Along the same lines, there's a big emphasis in Spinoza on the importance of freedom of speech, because for Spinoza, it's very difficult in practice to control speech anyway, and if you try to control speech, that leads to passionate responses that disrupt order, right? So politically, we end up with some different contributions from all three, and we're going to talk about those contributions in due course, but I first want to give Edmund a chance to comment a bit on some of the different metaphysical bases for these constructions, where you have, you know, first, Hobbes arguing that we are driven by our passions, but principally by our fear of death. Uh, Hume arguing that we are driven in large part by positive sentiments, our attachments to our family and friends, but that that causes us to steal from other people. And Spinoza, who argues that when we live in accordance with reason, we can do well, but we have to be careful about coming off the tracks. Mm. So, Edmund, with that as a little bit of a set of introductory thoughts, how is it that the metaphysical and epistemological premises of these theorists get lead to these different accounts of human nature? Yeah. Well, one connection that it's possible to draw between the uh, the epistemology of these th three theorists. That is to say, the, the views that Hobbes, Hume, and Spinoza had on what it is possible to know um, is the empiricism of Hobbes and Hume versus the rationalism of Spinoza. And what this means is uh, that for Hobbes and Hume, experience was the foundation of human knowledge, whereas for Spinoza, as Benjamin has indicated, reason is the primary means by which we acquire knowledge. And of course, it's not quite as simple as that, um, because, for instance, for Spinoza, our passions are important, and the state has to attend to passions, um, such as the uh, very basic drive for self-preservation, which both Hobbes and Spinoza take to be really fundamental to politics, and uh, indeed fundamental 
to uh, what it means to be human in general, or, or simply what it means to be everything for Spinoza, is in a sense striving to preserve its motion. Um, Hobbes's idea of uh, everything being reducible to uh, material motion, to bodies um, commuting motion to one another, is uh, quite similar to Spinoza's view of the essence of bodies being the preservation of their motion, of uh, striving towards self-preservation. And so for both Hobbes and Spinoza, survival is quite important. And that's one thing that motivates their uh, imagination of a state that is quite centralized. But of course, the difference is that Spinoza's state is a democratic uh, centralized state that has to attend to such issues as um, uh, freedom of speech, whereas Hobbes's uh, state is centralized in a more monarchical way, or at least Hobbes prefers monarchy to other regime types. And uh, so the way in which the idea of self-preservation, the drive of self-preservation plays out in Hobbes and Spinoza is different. And one reason is that Spinoza is a rationalist first and foremost. He thinks reason is uh, morally preferable to passion because passion tends to divide us due to the diversity of passions among different human beings. Whereas reason is something we share uh, we, we share with the gods or with God and is therefore something that can unify us. Whereas uh, passion being something that we share with, uh, with the beasts or with other animals is something that tends towards greater division than reason. Uh, and so in this way, passion in Spinoza's theory is instrumentalized for the sake of uh, reason rather than the other way around. And Hobbes and Hume are the empiricists are here, uh, and Spinoza is the yes. rationalist. Uh, just, to, just if I may, might come in for a moment, uh, I think this point that you're making about uh, rationalism and empiricism being the root difference here is important because in the case of Spinoza, because Spinoza thinks that knowledge comes from reason, the thing that Spinoza is worried about politically is the ruler not being governed by reason, losing control of the passions, right? So one person can very easily lose control, right? And if one person loses control in a monarchy, well, that's it. You're done. In a democracy, you can have more people lose control without the whole of the democracy losing control, right? And that leads him to a more democratic position. For Hobbes, the worry is not the passions being overcome. For Hobbes, the reason we have the state is the passion, the passionate fear of death and drive to survive. For Hobbes, the concern is division because division leads to mutual mistrust and mutual fear. As soon as you introduce division in the sovereignty, now you have people who can look at each other and go, hey, you might be looking to hurt me. 
I don't know. Mm. I can't read your mind. So for Hobbes, dividing the state into a legislature or a democratic body introduces the possibility of division. And by introducing the possibility of division, introduces, reintroduces the fear of death and the killing and the instability. And perhaps even if it takes a long time for that to happen, eventually it will. Once you have division, then those divisions can map onto anything else that might be going on and become the basis for splitting the state. So interestingly, for Hobbes and for Spinoza, the opposite kind of polity best secures against division because for Spinoza, the passions are divisive and reason is unifying. And the risk in a monarchy is that the monarch will lose the threat of reason. So both are aiming at unity as the answer to division, but identifying it in very different political institutions. For Hobbes, you need an actual unity of political power within the monarch. But for Spinoza, you need the unity of having a state which is committed to reason, and that unity is more easily attained for him through a demos than through an individual ruler. Mm. A curious consequence of a relatively basic metaphysical difference, an epistemological difference in the way that the world is viewed. Mm. Though for Spinoza, an interesting commonality between Spinoza and Hobbes is that both have power at the very center of their views of the world, um, such that Spinoza explains um, right in terms of power, this constant striving towards self-preservation. And similarly, Hobbes defines natural right as the uh, uh, liberty each uh, person has to use whatever means they think necessary to preserve their own being. And in both the Hobbesian and to some degree uh, the Spinozan state, this natural right has to be to some degree sidelined in favor of the, the, the power of the sovereign. Though in Spinoza's state, this is much less the case and natural right is to some degree preserved because it's a democracy where each person is still looking after their own interests more than they are in Hobbes's state where they have to more or less alienate their natural right entirely to the sovereign. Um, and that's the distinction that Spinoza himself says um, makes his account um, different from Hobbes's. Um, he says the difference between Hobbes's account and his, quote, consists in this, that I ever preserve the natural right intact so that the supreme power in a state has no more right over a subject than is proportionate to the power by which it is superior to the subject. So in other words, while in Hobbes's state, natural right is completely yielded to the sovereign, in Spinoza's state, uh, the power which a sovereign has is less absolute um, than in Hobbes's state. And it's more of a relative thing proportionate to how much capacity the state has and contingent on the state preserving 
such liberties as the freedom of speech. And this is one similarity between Spinoza and Hume, because one reason that Spinoza gives for freedom of speech being important is that uh, the opinion of subjects has an important bearing on whether the state can endure, um, because the state has to ensure that subjects don't have uh, sufficient reason to rebel against the state. And Spinoza has good Hobbesian reasons for being worried about that. But he's also interested in uh, the opinion of subjects. He doesn't think that subjects can, though survival is central to them, simply uh, see forfeiting natural right as um, justified by the survival imperative, because they might actually think that other things matter too for them. Um, and perhaps it's not quite possible to use the self-preservation desire uh, to justify degree, the degree of absolutism that Hobbes suggests, partly because of the significance of opinion, um, which Hume also says is important. Um, the, Hume claims that it is uh, on opinion only that government is founded. Um, the reason Hume gives for this is that, uh, quote, nothing appears more surprising to those who consider human affairs with a philosophical eye than the easiness with which the many are governed by the few and the implicit submission with which men resign their own sentiments and passions to those of their rulers. When we inquire by what means this wonder is effected, we shall find that as forces always on the side of the governed, the governors have nothing to support them but opinion. Uh, Spinoza's argument is not quite as extreme as Hume's, um, but he similarly argues that uh, you can't uh, simply use Hobbesian force to justify the state. You have to also attend to uh, what it takes to make the state acceptable to subjects. It's quite curious why this is the case. Um, perhaps the reason is not quite the same. One thing that makes Hume's philosophy distinctive is the skepticism of Hume's view versus the dogmatism of Spinoza and uh, Hobbes. So I, I, I said repeatedly how what's distinctive about Spinoza is his rationalism. Um, what's distinctive about, vis-a-vis uh, -vis these other theorists, what's distinctive about Hume is his skepticism, um, both in philosophy and in his politics. In his philosophy, those he, he is an empiricist, uh, though he thinks that um, empirical matters of fact can only be found out through experience. He thinks that the relations of ideas, uh, say, um, propositions of mathematics or propositions of logic, can't be discovered simply by experience. Thought has this structuring role here. Uh, and so Hume is a sceptical empiricist. He's not uh, perhaps as full-blown or as confident in his empiricism than Hobbes is, um, partly because he's more sceptical of metaphysics than uh, than Hobbes and Spinoza are. Um, Hobbes claims to reject metaphysical views, but he does have a very thick ontology underlying his view, whereas Hume, being more sceptical um, of such claims, isn't willing to take that as the 
grounds of his empiricism. Um, and that's another thing that's um, curious about these theorists, that they differ not just on whether they're rationalists or empiricists, but how skeptical versus how dogmatic they are. Yeah. As I'm listening, I was I was also thinking about the similarities. So you have a, a unified interest in survival, but very different ideas about the best way to secure survival, stemming from different understandings of how we as people think about surviving, right? Is survival as central in Hume's view as it is in the other theorists? I think there, to a significant degree, because otherwise there will be all of this theft, and the theft often involves violence. Mm. So I think that there, there's a significant amount of that going on in Hume's view, too. Mm. The, the difference is that for Hume, he downplays the survival threat at the level of small communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And introduces it as something which comes in when you have big populations as a consequence of trying to build these artificial societies. Is there also an extent to which Hume thinks that uh, our sentiments are really what drives us? He says, quote, reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions. Uh, Stark contrast, of course, with Spinoza. Um, For Hume, therefore, uh, we have quite diverse passions. Uh, Our passions don't only concern survival, whereas for Hobbes, there's uh, and for Spinoza, passion is really there ultimately uh, in service of self-preservation. Though we can make mistakes individually on what's necessary for self-preservation, that's the ultimate key there. It, it, is self-preservation equally the key in Hume's theory, um, or is one reason why Hume is willing to? entertain this uh, state founded on, um, as we were discussing before the podcast, uh, such institutions as the rule of law and property rights, because Hume is attentive to how important passions that go beyond survival are to the state. Um, It's not just survival-related passions that matter in politics. I think think to a point, certainly. Uh, The thing about about Hume is that Hume recognizes that if you have someone, he calls them, he calls this person a sensible knave, a sensible knave who doesn't happen to have any strong commitment to the state or to the public or to other people as citizens Mm. or fellow subjects. That the sensible knave would have every every reason to free ride. That a person, that certainly you can have a person who is a sensible knave, and that it's very hard to convince the sensible knave to not free ride. Mm. And that seems to suggest that for Hume, it makes sense that we would parasitically take advantage of the order that secures our survival for other kinds of gains, right? Now, it's backed by the knowledge that getting those other kinds of gains will not threaten the order itself, right? The individual sensible knave knows that they can pursue other goods at the expense of the order without the order collapsing, 
right? That's the thing about the free rider. The free rider wants to get the benefits of non-cooperation without the cooperative system collapsing. And that's what makes the free rider's relationship to the order parasitic, right? Now, Hume says, how could you even convince such a person? If such a person doesn't have the sentiment that there's something deeply wrong with being a free rider, what can you really say? Right? Hmm. From an argumentative standpoint. Now, of course, Hobbes' solution to somebody like that is, is, well, legislate that they comply, and then if they don't comply, kill them or torture them and, and in some way intimidate everybody by their example. Right? Hmm. Uh, and this rule of, of conventions, rule of law system that Hume sets up is supposed to play a similar kind of role in ensuring compliance. Yeah, yeah. But it's still going to be the case that if you have a sensible knave who spots an area where they can get away with non-compliance, Hume doesn't have an obvious argument for the sensible knave, apart from it's amazing that you don't have the sentiment that you shouldn't do that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, And so I think that is acknowledging that other things are important to people. I think Hobbes also acknowledges that other things are important to people. But Hobbes tries to solve his problems with fear. So Hobbes will, when he gets into that kind of situation, look for ways to use fear. For the most part, he does, Hobbes does support a system of education to persuade people of the argument of Leviathan, that the monarch is, if the monarch is wise, advised to uh, teach the argument of Leviathan to the subjects. Mm. So it's not all, all about fear, uh, but the argument that you're teaching is one about what they should be afraid of. So it is, in a way, teaching them to be afraid if they're not, or teaching them to give their fear a priority that they might not be giving it. Hmm. In Hume's case, it's it's a rule of law system, and presumably that rule of law system is backed up by the state. Hmm. But there's more of an emphasis on what we get beneficially from the cooperation. So if we are not stealing from our family and friends, uh, then we'll be able to cooperate with strangers, and then we can cooperate at a much bigger scale, which can enable us to get lots of other things. So it's not just about then we won't die. Of course, a bigger state is more durable and more likely to survive in a conflict. It's more capable of protecting you. But that's not the only thing that is emphasized. It's also the immense benefits of being able to cooperate with larger numbers of people and not having to know everybody that you cooperate with. Mm. Right? So I think there's that element too in Hume's thought. Uh, the, the other thing that's similar about all of these theorists is their emphasis on states of nature. Right? And by emphasizing states of nature, kind of pre-political conditions where the state hasn't been brought into being and you have individuals in a natural state, either completely alone or in kind of small tribal groups, small communities at, at most. Uh, that is something that is very attractive to a lot of the theorists of this period and also very attractive to the theorists in the social contract tradition more generally, which builds on from these accounts. And something that has always bothered me about those theories is this suggestion that you can build a state from a condition, from a stateless condition, that you can kind of have 
politics emerge from a non-politics place, right? It kind of supposes a, it's kind of like a creationist narrative for politics where there's a creation point where politics happens and previously it didn't happen. Mm. I've never liked that way of defining or thinking about politics because I think that even in cases where politics seems to start over or remerge or something, there's some kind of political condition, which is prior to that, which structures the attitudes people have when they go into politics. So a principal event that is very influential on all of these theorists is, of course, the English Civil War and the Glorious Revolution. And these are moments where it might seem like there's civil conflict and that civil conflict might seem like a state of nature where there's an opportunity to create a state as if from new or as if from a, a stateless condition. But of course, the reality is that the different factions that are struggling with each other in Britain are were themselves created by and the legacy of the previous kind of state which existed there. And so that state has all sorts of baggage to it. There's a distribution of land, there's a class system, there's a religion, a state religion. These features of the previous order, the distribution of power, the distribution of stuff, the kinds of ideas that are current, the way that states get legitimated, the kinds of legitimation narratives that the population is willing to buy into or accept. There's this huge overhang of the previous kind of state. And when you abstract away from all of that, you can speak more simply about what human beings are like, perhaps, but this ignores the fact that human beings themselves are always structured by the society out of which they emerge. And we are very, very far from having emerged from societies that are small enough in scale to be comparable to what Hume even is talking about. Uh, even in a world of city-states, we have stuff that's much bigger than small tribes where everybody knows everybody. Mm. And so there's a kind of imaginarium occurring here as these theorists are trying to solve the very contemporary problem of what kind of governments should Britain have, right? I think it, there's a sense in which Spinoza is a bit different because Spinoza's, uh, even Spinoza's ethics um, were premised on the view that living in a state is a more reasonable condition than living alone, and that human beings are best fit for living um, in communion with one another than in solitary confinement, which is a view of human nature which is perhaps less, uh, somewhat less individualistic than uh, Ho Hobbes and Hume, though at the same time, uh, Spinoza's view is premised on a kind of psychological egoism where we're always striving for our own individual survival. And that is still the motor of Spinoza's politics. I mean, there's a sense in which Spinoza's view of reason is highly abstract and universal, whereas his view of passion is of something that's very individual. Um, and so there is that polarity or division there between a kind of concrete individualism and abstract collectivism, uh, a concrete disunity. And Hobbes, and Hobbes constructs unity. abstraction too. Yes. Hobbes constructs the abstraction of the commonwealth out of his individuals. Yes. Yeah. And so, of course, with, with Hobbes, you end up with this commonwealth, which represents 
the the multitude, but not in a thick way. None of the individuals in the multitude get their beliefs or ideas represented by the Commonwealth. Uh, instead, they're represented only in the sense that the their security is guaranteed by the Commonwealth. And since their security is guaranteed by the Commonwealth, they need the Commonwealth to be able to do anything in life. And therefore, implicitly, they, they must agree to everything the Commonwealth does, because the Commonwealth is the prerequisite for survival and therefore for life itself. Yes. Um, and the monarch for Hobbes personates the Commonwealth, brings the abstraction of the Commonwealth into being. Mm. Right. And by personating the Commonwealth is able to represent the multitude, but not in a, in a, you can't straightforwardly represent a multitude because for Hobbes, it's too fractious, it's too divided. It's got too many different people all trying to get too many different things. So instead of, you know, directly representing this multitude, it's mediated through the abstraction of the Commonwealth because the Commonwealth can be defined by the sovereign in a way which makes it concrete. Yeah. So you end up with this abstract kind of artificial person of the state through Hobbes's theory. And that's very abstract compared to uh, where Hobbes begins with everything is matter in motion and therefore everything is reducible to something material. Yeah. The state is is a kind of artificial thing. Yes. That nonetheless has great temporal material consequence for Hobbes. But because Hobbes is committed to empiricism, he has to build it up from the foundation. And he has to be very, very detailed in the way that he constructs it because he's so skeptical of abstract categories that are not reducible to matter in motion and the consequences thereof. He's trying very hard to make this into a science. With empiricism, you tend to get these two strands, a very skeptical strand and a very scientific strand where the scientific strand is trying to really, really nail things down. And the skeptical strand is more playful and questioning. And Hume represents that more playful and questioning strand. Hobbes trying very hard to make something that is very systematic from the ground up. Uh, and that's, I think, part of what's enduringly appealing about Hobbes's system, regardless of whether you like it or you don't like it, it's something that you can think through. And it works like a train. I always describe it to students as the Habesian train, where each part is directly the consequence of the previous part. So the locomotive of this view of matter in motion pulls all this other stuff along hmm. in a very satisfying linear path. Uh, Hume is more playful than that and less, less confident, less willing to commit in a permanent way. So anything Hume throws out, he also wants to play with and interrogate, right? Mm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, one other difference uh, between uh, Hobbes and Spinoza on one hand and Hume on the other, um, which partly reflects the greater dogmatism of Hobbes and Spinoza versus the greater skepticism of Hume, uh, is that uh, Hobbes and Spinoza, though Spinoza concedes a lot more to freedom of speech than Hobbes does, which Hobbes does not think is a value worth preserving in a state. Um, at the same time, Spinoza does say that uh, 
quote, authority in sacred matters belongs wholly to the sovereign powers. And Spinoza also makes the argument uh, that uh, though, uh, quote, in a free state, every man may think what he likes and say what he thinks, um, nonetheless, uh, quote, the outward forms of religion should be in accordance with public peace. So Spinoza is making that Hobbesian concession because he cares a lot about survival. And indeed, the concession to free speech is done not just on moral grounds, not just because he thinks that some free speech is good uh, from a perspective of um, having a rational appreciation of the unity of all things in nature or God, or Deus sive natura, the foundation of uh, Spinoza's metaphysics. At the same time, Spinoza thinks, as I mentioned earlier, that because the opinion of subjects matters, if you violate free speech too much, then you will undermine the stability of the state, and this will disrupt the condition for self-preservation, which is that Hobbesian coercive power to ensure uh, a, a common uh, protector of our uh, rights to stay alive. Um, and so that's one respect in which uh, Hobbes and Spinoza uh, share something important in common, uh, that belief in the power of the state is something that's quite central. It is also central to Hume, um, but there is also something that distinguishes Hume from um, Hobbes and Spinoza, um, which is this greater emphasis on um, property rights and rule of law, partly because uh, Hume is more, uh, or at least less opposed uh, than Hobbes is to uh, commerce and luxury uh, within a state, um, and so is more willing to entertain a political form that allows for the growth of commerce and luxury. And while Hobbes isn't necessarily an anti-commercial thinker, as uh, say scholars like Istvan Hunt have argued, he equally isn't the uh, kind of enthusiast or sceptical enthusiast of trade that say uh, Hume is. And perhaps this is partly because Hobbes is writing in the context of the English Civil War, dealing principally with the question of um, ensuring the bare conditions of politics, of stability to maintain life as secured, whereas Hume, uh, writing in the next century, is uh, concerned more with some of the emergent uh, conditions of commerce and the effects thereof um, for states uh, that he's starting to grapple with. And this is perhaps why, yeah. Yeah, why, why Hobbes's artificial power is what guarantees the, the state's integrity. For Hume, it's artificial laws, which are there to ensure, uh, in part, uh, stability in um, profits and trade. Um, 
It's perhaps a contrast, if I may, might draw a little extrapolation, um, between uh, Ernst Frankel's normative state and prerogative state, uh, as we laid out in the last podcast episode on the Frankfurt School. Ernst Frankel was writing about the uh, 20th century authoritarian state, um, particularly the Nazi state, but he was also making a point that modernity in general has these two elements, has um, prerogative power on the one hand, uh, arbitrary power, that is to say, and normative uh, law on the other hand. And the normative law is there specifically to ensure uh, stability of profits. Um, and the link between, I want to draw, is between the prerogative state and Hobbes and the normative state and Hume as some perhaps people who anticipate these two state forms of what Frankel calls the dual state. Um, and I think this is, this is an interesting, interesting way of, of comparing. I, I want to elaborate on it a little yeah. bit. So, yeah, and, and of course, you know, Frankel is writing much later and this, these guys would, I, I have no reason to believe Frankel spent a lot of time reading these guys, but there's an interesting link here insofar as this emphasis that we see in Hume on there being a kind of legal property system for the management of stuff and the economy. This idea develops into this rule of law idea that eventually becomes very, very popular in the German canon. Mm. Uh, and you know, Hayek, for instance, is absolutely, absolutely fixated on this idea of a spontaneous order or rule of law, uh, which manages the economy without it having to be actively managed, right? And it's a very impersonal system. Because it's a rule of law, everyone is subject to it, right? So one of the things that bothers uh, Spinoza in particular, I think it is, about uh, aristocracy, is the idea that some people might not be subject to rule of law. And so here's yeah. an area where Spinoza and Hume have something in common. This idea that if any people are not underneath this impersonal system, then you have a possibility of tyranny or a possibility of, of corruption or abuse, right? They would much rather have something artificial in charge. Even with Hobbes in this emphasis on, uh, you know, the, the commonwealth and the state as this artificial person, there's an emphasis in all of these theorists on making the state more artificial and more disconnected from human impulses, right? From human drives, because those human drives so often go in directions that we don't want them to go, right? But, in Hobbes's theory, there's this emphasis on representation, right? Now, in Hobbes's original theory, that representation is very thin. Because Hobbes treats the multitude as totally fractious, the sovereign cannot represent particular people in the multitude, and they can only be represented in this thin way mediated through the commonwealth. But later liberal theorists will take this conception of representation and thicken it, and they'll want the state to reflect values, or attitudes or aesthetic elements back at uh, people, back at the subject, so that the subject gets a kind of cathartic release from seeing their cultural content reflected back at them. And when we move forward to Carl Schmitt in the German case, Carl Schmitt, who borrows heavily from Hobbes, has this much more cathartic understanding of what the state does, the state reflecting and representing a way of life, 
rather than just providing for security with this thin representation. So it gets much, much thicker, right? And then alongside that, you have this rule of law stuff. So the kind of the Schmidtian element and the Hayekian element in German thought. But here we might identify uh, them with, with, with Hobbes and with Hume, but different, different in the Hobbesian case, because Hobbes, uh, there's no reason to think that Hobbes would be particularly interested in, satisfied, or impressed by an argument which posits that the state is there to defend a way of life, a culture, rather than actual life survival. Mm. Uh, for Hobbes, it would be silly to fight a war over a way of life if you could survive and change your way of life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but these these two things, I do think that these two currents, you can see the roots of them in this British theory, uh, and that uh, you, there is some borrowing and and a development on these themes. Whether they're borrowing from the specific thinkers is another story. But there's development of these kinds of themes in some of the German theory we've been talking about. Now, that's the way in which this British theory is kind of a. Uh, antecedent to some of that German theory. It's also different, though, because uh, in Britain, this won't lead to a big emphasis on autonomy and the German ideal of freedom. It will instead move toward utilitarianism, right? And why does it move toward utilitarianism? Well, a big part of this appeal of going back to survival is going back to stuff that everybody has in common. So as we start to have these intense debates about what's natural, uh, what kind of society is in accordance with nature, it gets harder and harder to find agreement as we get further and further away from the Catholic consensus on natural law theory. So there's this spiraling disagreement, and these theorists are looking for how can we get people to agree on some bare minimum. And so this leads to a thinning out of values, thinning out of values. And going back to survival is a very, very thin basis. It's very thin. You don't have to have a lot of agreement on other stuff to agree that survival matters. And so there's some possibility of building a new kind of unity or polity off of survival. The difficulty is that, as you see with Hobbes's theory of representation, it's very thin. It doesn't provide much catharsis. It's not oriented toward giving you a lot of pleasure or giving you a lot of material benefits or living standard increases. It's very thin because it's only really based around survival. And that makes it difficult to do enough for people to make people embrace the state. Very often, you, you can explain Hobbes's theory to students and, and go, well, do you agree with it? And they'll go, no. And I'll go, okay, what's wrong with it? And people have a very hard time saying what is wrong with it. But when you come down to it, Almost always the thing that bothers students about this theory is the level of priority it's giving to survival and its lack of concern for other values. So going all the way down and thinning all the way down to survival, while it produces theories that are potentially more compelling persuasively, that work internally, their internal logic is very coherent, they don't satisfy everything in human beings that needs satisfying. And so they tend to struggle to be the basis for politics on their own, right? Even if you look at states which play up this Hayekian, Humean rule of law, rule of conventions, property system, that's not enough to inspire people to obey the state or to comply with the state's order. And so you need this cathartic element, which comes in through this thickening out of representation, at the same time, the utilitarians are offering a, a, 
well, not at the same time, a little bit later, the utilitarians come and they go, okay, we're having all this argument about what's natural, and we've got all this natural rights theory, natural law theory, and now the natural has become just as confusing a term as the terms that we were hoping to use it to replace. Uh, it's become just as difficult to speak about the natural and have people know what you're talking about as it is to talk about anything else. So, let's get away from natural rights and natural law, and let's instead talk about just what do people find pleasurable and what do people find painful? What do people desire and what do people not desire, right? Getting back to that Habesian emphasis on appetites and aversions. Hobbes describes desires in terms of appetites and aversions or moving toward and moving away from, right? Uh, and Hume are, talks about sentiments, how everything is driven by our sentiments. For the utilitarians, everything will be driven by our desire for pleasure and our desire to avoid pain. And in this way, you, you get a theory which isn't just based on survival, but which is trying to translate all other values into utility, into pleasure or desire satisfaction. So this theory tries to make up for the stuff that is missing in the narrower, thinner survival accounts by having utility be a kind of universal currency, right? Utility becomes the kind of US dollar of moral values, and everything is then converted into the dollars into the currency of utility. And that's in part why it, it sounds almost like a mercantile theory. And it's a theory which is popular among the, the rising bourgeois liberal class in Britain. It frustrates Germans. The German theorists look at utilitarianism and find it very dissatisfying because it seems to them to be a kind of vulgar shopkeeper theory. A lot of the other th values that someone might autonomously choose for German theorists seem to them to be different from utility, different from market values, too different from instrumental reason, right? Instrumental reason gets associated with this kind of utilitarian thinking by the Frankfurt School. And so for these Germans, there needs to be some kind of substantive value or substantive reason outside of the instrumental and therefore outside of utilitarianism. And so utilitarianism is viewed as just insufficient by the Germans. Conversely, the Brits will go, well, you can convert whatever other values you have into the currency of utility. And utility is connected to pleasure and pain, into what people actually feel, into something real. And isn't that better than all these German abstractions, which might be utterly meaningless? Mm. Right? A lot of people who grew up in an English-speaking country go through a period where they are utilitarian or sympathetic to utilitarianism, especially if you like science. It's very appealing because it narrows morality down only to stuff which is scientifically clearly and obviously there, the experience of pain, the experience of pleasure, right? The issue is the attempts to translate other kinds of values into utility don't go very well. Attempts by utilitarians to solve that problem tend to leave people dissatisfied. The most compelling version of utilitarianism is usually an unapologetic version, which doesn't make much in the way of an attempt to rank pleasures or tier them, but which just asserts that anything that matters can, is describable in terms of desire, satisfaction. And that's where a lot of contemporary secular 
moral philosophy is at. A lot of contemporary secular moral philosophy is focused around desire satisfaction. And then the people who are trying to make some more concessions to other kinds of stuff will go, well, it's not your desires that we should be trying to satisfy, but your fully informed desires or the desires that you would have uh, after engaging in an ideal deliberation. Right? These are attempts to make some level of compromise with people who think that not everything uh, good and, and right is included in desire. But if you think about ancient moral philosophy and ancient political theory, desire is often positioned as a problem, as in opposition to other things that matter, and not as a kind of catch-all currency that you can translate everything into. Mm. And so this question of whether pleasure and the good are the same thing or different things becomes a difficult one to litigate. And it often depends on how you define terms. If you define pleasure widely enough, it can potentially encompass everything. But if you define it that widely, it tends to tell you very little about how to live. Because if anything can be pleasurable, then it's just a matter of whatever you happen to like. And so then the moral philosophy doesn't tell you very much. You know, what if you happen to like killing large numbers of people? It doesn't tell you very much at that stage. Now, if you're supposed to count what everybody wants and what everyone desires, then the question is, well, why, why are you counting everybody? And this is where you get back into that question of the sensible knave. The sensible knave for utilitarianism is the one who goes, well, why don't I just care about my own utility? Why do I care about everybody yeah. else? What else is going on here? Because of the emphasis on individualism, it's hard to build a case for caring about other people. The liberal concept which will try to do that is equality. Equality. And that concept is emphasized most heavily by the French. And we'll get into that and talk more about that in subsequent episodes. But yeah, the, the way of attempting to solve this problem is this emphasis on equality. Yeah, yeah. Is there also a sense in which, while for Hobbes, the answer to individuals uh, free riding um, on what is necessary for survival, that is to say, adhering to their own individual judgment on what's necessary for survival by uh, being violent towards other people um, preemptively in order to safeguard their own security. The answer to this problem is through uh, a strong uh, um, centralized state. Uh, the answer for Hume to the uh, problem of um, his uh, knave uh, pursuing uh, not necessarily survival-related passions alone, but lots of different um, passions, including passions for um, items of luxury uh, is resolved through having uh, this impersonal uh, legal system protecting uh, property rights to ensure that everybody has um, what is uh, necessary uh, both to satisfy their necessary desires for survival but also what Plato called their unnecessary desires um, for uh, for luxurious goods. Uh, Hume is wary of luxury um, and he cautions against too much luxury. He uh, says of the he, he says of the Dutch in his history of England in the uh, early modern period, quote, by a continued and successful application to commerce, the people were become unwarlike 
and confided entirely for their defence in that mercenary army which they maintained after the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, the states, trusting to their peace with Spain and their alliance with France, had broken a great part of this army and did not support with sufficient vigilance the discipline of the troops which remained. So Hume is uh, very cognizant, in other words, of, of the threat that trade poses to the ability of the state to defend itself. Um, and in this way, he does insist that the state uh, retains a degree of discipline. Uh, but equally, he thinks that uh, because human beings have these desires and have these passions uh, for items of, of, of uh, trade um, and of luxury goods that go beyond what is necessary for our survival. Uh, the state can't um, uh, do what uh, Fenelon argued the state should do uh, by, to some degree, suppressing uh, luxurious trade. Rather, the state should channel it and manage it uh, through this um, impersonal system of rules and laws. Um, uh, and through you know, Hayek, what, what Hayek called the legislation that's necessary for maintaining the market. Um, and perhaps this is a similarity with Spinoza, uh, that Spinoza being worried about uh, the, uh, the tendency of both aristocrats and oligarchs alike to behave like the patrician class in the late Roman Republic towards disregarding uh, common laws and pursuing their own interests. Uh, we need some kind of uh, constitution to uh, lay down the laws which restrain the rapacious appetites um, that uh, trade can generate. But neither uh, Hume nor Spinoza are willing to uh, go and say that trade has to be suppressed, rather they think it has to be managed, and the way it is managed is through impersonal laws. Yeah, I think we may do a whole episode at some point on the debate surrounding luxury and commercial society during the uh, 18th century. That's an interesting debate, and it might be the basis for a full episode. Uh, I do want to, to say one more thing, if we've got any committed Kantians out there. Uh, you might be asking, well, why why don't they just answer the question of the sensible knave with the categorical imperative? Why don't they just say, well, if everyone did that, then everything would collapse and therefore you mustn't? Well, the issue is that the categorical imperative implies an, imperat an imperator, someone to give the command of the categorical imperative. Now, that can be God or it can be reason itself, right? Now, if you are an empiricist like Hobbes or Hume or the utilitarians, you cannot hold that there is a commander external to you, God or reason, uh, that is going to do that job for you and give you the categorical imperative and compel you to abide by it. Because Hobbes and Hume don't posit the existence of transcendental reason and perhaps even God himself, uh, they don't have some kind of command element 
which can just assert that morality matters and force that through. They, because they are empiricists, have to construct morality through what people are already motivated to do, already desire to do, already care about. So if there are people who are not motivated by this public-spiritedness, concern for the other, who are not motivated by things like Kant's categorical imperative, the fact that those people are not motivated by those things is a problem for them, regardless of whether they should be motivated by them or there is some kind of divine or moral force out there which ought to compel them. And this is one of the curious things about a lot of this theory. A lot of the this British moral theory, it pitches itself as being normative, as arguing about what we should do, but much of it is just engaged in describing human nature, what people are motivated to do, and what that makes possible, right? It's much more descriptive than it is normative, mm. despite the way it often pitches itself, Yeah. right? To the point where we now have utilitarian theories that are mainly about just describing what desires we happen to have. Uh, and in this way, they, they become more or less just psychological accounts of what human beings are like. And they're still being called moral theories, but they're not really normative because they're just naturalizing behavior. Oh. Uh, Derek Parfit talks about this in On What Matters, the tendency among uh, naturalists in moral philosophy to just describe what people happen to be motivated to do. Yeah. And to treat that as if it were an answer to the question of what they should yeah. do. And if there is something that is in common between these three theorists of human nature and of the political implications thereof, um, it's that... Uh, Hobbes, Hume, and Spinoza are to some degree all naturalists. I say that with a lot of confidence about Spinoza and Hobbes. I say that with some confidence about uh, that with Hume, because uh, Hume is uh, less committed um, to the very existence of things outside of ourselves than Hobbes and Spinoza. He entertains the possibility of the skeptical hypothesis being correct, but he rejects it for all practical purposes and says that we shouldn't um, entertain such speculations about whether the external world exists or not, um, because it's pointless and it has no practical benefit um, to it. Um, so in practice, they all three of these theorists are uh, to some degree naturalists. And, yeah. and the listener might go, Wait, I thought you said Spinoza's a rationalist, so why is he also oh. a naturalist? Well, Spinoza's a dualist, and because he's a dualist, he thinks that there's the kind of natural world and then the ideal well, rational. I would caveat that because I, I think the sense in which he, I think these two things are compatible. I would say what Spinoza is, is what uh, David Chalmers uh, calls uh, naturalistic dualism. Uh, Chalmers uses this to describe his own view rather than Spinoza's. Uh, but for Spinoza, uh, basically Spinoza's metaphysics is that everything, everything um, is contained within God or nature, which is the same thing. God equals nature. Deus uh, natura, And uh, that is the one substance of all things. Uh, Spinoza is not a substance dualist. He thinks there is only one substance because he thinks there can be no uh, causal interaction among substances. There has to be only one uh, substance because uh, uh, it doesn't make sense to explain one substance in terms of another 
because uh, a substance is that which explains itself for Spinoza. Uh, there's one substance in the universe. However, there are two properties or attributes of that substance, thought and extension. Oh, in other words, body and mind, matter and thought. So Spinoza is a substance monist, but he is a property dualist. Um, so he is a dualistic naturalist, therefore. He is a, a naturalist and he thinks that everything is contained within nature, but nature comes in two aspects, mind and thought. But he, he nevertheless treats those two things dualistically because he thinks that um, every thought can be explained by a train of prior thoughts and every material event can be explained by a prior set of material events. And though there is a what Leibniz might call a, a pre-established harmony between these two things, between thought and mind, they run parallel to each other, but they nonetheless don't actually interact. It's only uh, within nature as a whole that you can explain them. It's not that matter explains thought or thought explains matter, uh, but that within nature as a whole they can be explained, because these are the two modes, or at least the two modes that we know of of nature. Spinoza entertains the possibility that there could be many, many modes of nature, but the two that we know of are thought and extension, matter and mind. Um, and uh, as a result of this, uh, he is, uh, in a sense, combining uh, the tendencies towards uh, realism and idealism. And the thing about Spinoza is that the both materialists and idealists have taken inspiration from him. Um, there are a lot of uh, legacies of Spinoza in German idealism. There's also a lot of legacies of Spinoza in some recent turns in Marxism, admittedly some rather idealist turns, um, uh, say in the philosophies of uh, Antonio Negri and uh, in uh, Deloitte's, but at the same time, Spinoza has been compared to Hobbes and can be seen from that materialist viewpoint too. I mean, Karl Marx uh, transcribed uh, whole swathes of the Tractatus. Um, so Spinoza, because he, within his conception of nature, he has both the material and the ideal, you can take him in either of these two directions. Um, whereas Hobbes is more straightforwardly a naturalist who defines nature as matter. Um, and Hume is, in a sense, a naturalist who defines nature as a set of empirically uh, comprehensible events. He, he's more skeptical than Hobbes about what we can say about this, what, what matter really is, because Hume isn't so sure that we can say for certainty, well, this is exactly what nature is in material terms. Um, he's skeptical, for instance, about whether we can even know what causation is, what it is that links events A and B, and what is it is that justifies our inference from past uh, causal tendencies to future causal tendencies through uh, postulating laws of nature. Because for Hume, uh, that's not something that can be really guaranteed by either reason or experience. It's just an assumption. Um, but for practical purposes, um, uh, despite these differences in metaphysics um, between the three, Hobbes being 
And you've yeah. summarized them very well. I'm very impressed at your rundown of Spinoza's metaphysics. <laughs> That, that was very nice. So, I mean, I think the one thing that's worth bearing in mind is that the metaphysics aren't exactly the same as the epistemology. So Hobbes has a dogmatic materialist metaphysics, Spinoza a dualistic naturalism about metaphysics, Hume a skeptical phenomenalism, phenomenalism being the view that there are different events that we can know empirically, but that we can't say exactly um, uh, have this or that real essence. We can't really know the nature of things, and that's not really what Hume is about. Uh, Hume is an instrumentalist. He thinks what we know is what is useful in making um, predictions and inferences. Uh, so he's a lot more pragmatic, and therefore metaphysics is less central to Hume. Um, so I think what's relevant for their politics um, is perhaps even more than their metaphysics, the epistemology, where Hobbes is a, a rational empiricist, um, where reason serves uh, experience um, or serves basic drives, basic passions uh, that underpin our action, especially the passion for survival. Uh, Spinoza is a tempered rationalist who thinks that reason is what matters the most, but that we can use passion to serve those rational ends. Hume is perhaps a reasonable empiricist, where while Hobbes sees reason as rationality, as calculation of the means necessary to satisfy the end of staying alive, for Hume, um, reason is interpreted more as uh, reasonableness, as balancing uh, different considerations in order to get at the heart of the matter. So for Hobbes, it's about following a kind of formulaic deduction of conclusions from premises. For Hume, it's more about teasing out what is most likely to be true. Um, and that and means this, for yeah. Hume that you don't have this very heavy metaphysics because for Hume, there's this playfulness about it and an uncertainty. Now, I talked about why these Brits weren't impressed by the categorical imperative. Another German that somebody might be thinking of is Nietzsche, right? For Nietzsche, if God is dead, that's a huge problem. Because in Kant, the commander, God or reason through God, is the reason that you have to follow the imperative and you can't be the sensible knave, right? So. For Nietzsche, once God and the commander drop out, now you have a big moral mess. But if you look at Hume, there's no commander here. Hume is just talking about what we happen to be motivated to do. And for Hume, the fact that we have these sentiments is enough to get behavior that people would describe as potentially moral. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We just happen to have these kinds of sentiments and happen to be the kinds of beings that make moral judgments. Yes. Right? Yeah. So the death of God is not an issue for Hume because Hume is just interested in describing what our sentiments happen to be and how we happen to be motivated. So if you have this very naturalist kind of morality, yes. then the death of God is not consequential in the same way as it is in the German tradition. Mm. Right, And this is why for the Brits, there has never been the same level of discomfort about the death of God. Uh, it doesn't play anything like the same kind of role as it does in Germany, where it's it's now a chaos because you had a commander and now the commander is gone. And all of morality is anchored 
around command, around imperative, right? In the Anglo tradition, you know, God is arguably dead in Hume. Some people think that Hobbes is an atheist. That's a contested question, right? Uh, so you don't have anything like the same kind of role for God in these theories. Now, the consequence of this is that the theories end up doing a lot of describing and treating as moral philosophy, description of motivation and psychology, right? So when we attempt to uh, get some kind of moral theory back out of this again, we end up having to somehow excavate our way out of this naturalism because the naturalism turns it into a very descriptive practice. And the person who's done this coming out of a tradition which is very much branched off utilitarianism is Derek Parfit. Derek Parfit, who tries to expunge all of this naturalism and turn this British moral philosophical tradition into something which can actually support normative ought claims again. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But all of that comes much, much later. Much, yeah. much later. And Derek Parfit's view is you know, quite uh, radical in a sense, because uh, ever since Hume, people have been making this claim uh, that there's a naturalistic fallacy, um, as reworkings of Hume have it. That, as Hume argued, you can't get an ought from an is. You can't say that because something is the case, it ought to be the case. But nonetheless, Hume himself arguably commits this fallacy by saying that uh, what we ought to do is to uh, extrapolate from our experiences to the experiences of others so that we're showing sympathy with other people. And why should we do this? Well, because we have these passions and because uh, the... We happen to have these sentiments. We happen to have these desires. Because, yeah. It just, it falls back on this regress. Yes, yeah. And, and he, he does go back to the passions in, in the end, uh, uh, even though it is about preferring the sympathetic passions to the unsympathetic passions, I mean, that itself is motivated by the... By the passions Hume happens exactly. to have. And this is something that, um, I mean, J.S. Mill also does in his justification for utilitarianism, where he tries to argue why individuals should be concerned about the, about the utility or the 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 amount of happiness that other people have as well as themselves and Sidgwick gets entirely stuck on this yeah. Sidgwick another utilitarian british moral yeah. theorist gets entirely stuck on this utilitarianism versus egoism question he can't find a way of bridging the two logics that you just have to pick between them he says he gets entirely entirely stuck on it and even Parfit in On What Matters says, well, moral thinking is to care about other people and egoism isn't. So it's just not a moral theory. Uh, there's no real reconciliation. Right. I think one, one reason for this is this dualism between uh, passion and reason in Spinoza, um, between uh, nature and artifice um, in Hobbes, and between uh, unsympathetic and uh, sympathetic uh, behavior for uh, Hume, 
or what the sensible knave would do and what the state would ensure uh, that we do or Hume's uh, preferred state would ensure that we do. Uh, Despite the fact that these theorists are trying to base their prescriptions on on nature, on what is, uh, this ironically does fall into perhaps a kind of a naturalistic dualism um, rather than uh, a, a clear-cut, uniform um, description and prescription of how the world is and ought to be. Uh, and it perhaps shows how difficult it is to extrapolate an ought from an is. Even when you do that, you can't stop falling into these dualisms. And indeed, these thinkers do fall into these dualisms. And I think one important dualism is between um, the concrete and the abstract, that these theorists recognize a lot of concrete division, which they resolve through abstract unity in the state. Uh, and But they don't like those abstractions. Right. There's this constant yeah. reluctance to use abstraction on the part of especially the really naturalist thinkers, but they end up using them anyway. Yeah, uh, this, They have a hostility to abstraction because they don't consider it to be real because it's not matter in motion. Uh, I think that the, the theorist, the German theorist who would have the most to say to make fun of all of this would be Hegel, because Hegel is going, well, you're not even wrestling with the individual collective distinction. You're just, you, and the relationship between these things and trying to find some kind of balance or synthesis between them. You're just saying, well, there's the you know, utility of everybody and then there's the individual. Right, right. But, but both, yeah. There's not even, there's not even the level of, you know, in utilitarianism, you don't really get a lot of nation-state utilitarianism or group utilitarianism. There's everybody and there's the individual. And the gulf between you have this kind of, the theory of everybody is still based on adding up individual goods. And so the, the collectivism of utilitarianism comes from this very micro-foundationalist adding up the good of discrete individuals, yeah. right? And you know, conversely, when you look at a lot of German theory from this period, you're starting with the state and then the state is securing autonomy. So starting from a collective, there's then an emphasis on autonomy for the individual coming out of the collective, right? Yeah. But because you're starting from the individual with utilitarianism, there's this constant, well, why don't you just act like an individual then and ignore the collective? The Germans think they have an answer to this, which is that your autonomy, your freedom, everything that you like comes out of the collective. And a mature intelligent person will recognize this and therefore continue to support collective institutions, mm. right? But the thing is, what compels you to do that? For the Germans, there tends to be this need to have some kind of commander, some kind of commander, whether it's God or reason or failing those two things, the state, mm. right? You always end up with a commander. The commander solves the problems for the Germans. For the Brits, it's abstractions based on uh, which, which to some degree betray the the original premises. Um, in the case of the Germans, it's finding somebody to order you around. Right. And to stop the endless conversation yeah, about that. It's values. either got to be the strict normativity or a strict prerogative. Frankel's normative state or the, norm or the prerogative state, um, where you either have this prerogative commander, this arbitrary will, 
bossing everyone around or this normative law um, to uh, ensure uh, stability in markets and uh, obedience to a, a common set of uh, rules. Yeah. And one, I think you yeah. see that resolved in the German tradition in two in the two directions of Schmidt and Hayek, where Schmidt is yes. the solution to this whole mess is the catharsis of the sovereign dictator, turning Hobbes's sovereign into this cathartic figure, cathartic leader figure. And uh, Hayek in this going, we have to marketize everything and depoliticize as much as we possibly can. Yes, yes. Mm. Yeah, and, and that- by, by contrast, and it, it frustrates. I think the Germans are often frustrated by inconsistency and hypocrisy in British thought. But because the Brits are willing to have this inconsistency and hypocrisy, they don't get into these totalizing. It must be this way or it must be that way. Uh, you know, and Hegel, of course, tried to avoid that with syntheses. But more often than not, in Germany uh, and in continental theory more generally, the quests for the means have ended in the extremes. In the British case, they just say "sadet." They 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 have theories riddled with contradictions, which they gloss over or ignore, in the interests of survival, in the interests of order maintenance. And really, that's how you come back around to Hobbes and, and Hume and Spinoza. At the end of the day, the reason why the Brits tend to tolerate so much inconsistency in their political theory is that they don't want to die. Mm. <laughs> and the Germans, they, they care about too many other things. Mm. Yeah. All right. I think we'll we'll end it there. Uh, thank you guys for listening. We might do a commer- maybe luxury and commerce next. Uh, we'll talk about it. That might be what's next. Mm. Uh, thank you, guys. Hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.